We are in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and I've titled this, The Human Race Needs to be Saved from God's Wrath. So, Lord, thank you for these verses. Lord, last week we learned about the righteousness of God as being the righteousness of God that is imputed to us. We are seen as believers as being as righteous as God. And so we thank you. Now, are we going to learn the reason why we need this righteousness of God imputed or transferred to our account, so to speak? So we just pray you help us to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So remember last week we talked about the righteousness of God, and there was two ways of looking at that. One is, you know, in a law perspective or context, it's how God will judge the sinner absolutely righteously. They'll get everything they deserve. But the righteousness of God in the context of the gospel is that we are given the righteousness of God and we are seen as being as righteous as God. It's just an amazing concept. So let's do a memory verse. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, the outline for today, the wrath of God, what we are saved from, the testimony God's creation, basically if there is a creation, there must also be a creator. Then there's a slippery slope of self-deception or self-delusion which leads to self-destruction. We're going to learn that when God allows us to continue in our sin, it's actually a punishment, it's not a gift. And lastly, the tragic result of worshipping a substitute God. Our sinful nature is exposed and judged. So, introduction. In Romans 1 verse 16, Paul talked about salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power to salvation, right? But salvation from what? You know, he hasn't really told us that yet. But now, he gives us the answer in these verses here. In chapter 1 verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So basically, our sinfulness, right? We need to be saved from God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, as we go through the next few weeks, covering Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to see that Paul is demonstrating absolute necessity of the good news of salvation to deliver us from God's righteous wrath against sin. So there is no other way to be saved from this wrath of God against sin. The only way is that we receive Christ's righteousness. And John Corson says, Here, Paul puts in the clutch and changes gears as he paints the canvas black in order that the gem of the gospel might stand out against the dark backdrop of human depravity. So, let's read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonour their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers or gossipers, backbiters or slanderers, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. A debased mind means it's disapproved. So back in the days of the Romans, you would have coins, and some coins wouldn't meet the standard. They'd have a defect, and they would be discarded. They wouldn't use those coins. Those coins were worthless. They didn't meet the standard. And so a disapproved mind, a debased mind is a disapproved mind. It doesn't meet the standard, and it does those things which are not fitting. So let's start at verse 18. The wrath of God, what we are saved from. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what does wrath mean? Well, same as the English translation, basically. Anger, abhorrence, indignation, vengeance, rage, punishing, destructive anger or fierce anger. And it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this is what we need to be saved from. God's wrath is against us because we have an inherently sinful nature and the wrath of God will destroy us unless there is a substitute, a saviour who is willing to be punished and suffer the full force of God's holy righteous anger or wrath against sin. And Morris says, unless there is something to be saved from, there is no point in talking about salvation. The gospel is the good news of being delivered or saved from God's infinitely holy, righteous, furious, hot and well-deserved wrath directed towards our inherent sinfulness. And Murray says, concerning the wrath of God, 
The wrath of God can be described as the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness, which goes against his holiness. It's not a part of his character. So, in other words, God doesn't judge a sinner by an arbitrary standard of right and wrong and he's emotionally distant. He, he doesn't care. Oh, yeah, that person, yeah, that's right and that's wrong. You know, when I'm marking maths test, I don't get emotionally involved if the person gets a, a sum wrong or some right, you know what I mean? It's not an emotional thing. It's not a moral thing that I'm judging between. But when God judges between right and wrong, he does get emotionally involved. Very emotionally involved. Sin, and therefore sinful man, is so morally disgusting and revolting to God that it, or we, cannot be in his presence. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate us. That's a point to consider, isn't it? If we were standing before God without Christ, he could not tolerate us. No matter if you were as good as Mother Teresa, you have a sinful heart. You could not be tolerated in God's sight. He would think that you were repulsive. You're born with this nature. You can't help it. But you can do something about it. So God has a severe and negative emotional and physical response to sin. It's his righteous wrath. So think about it like this. God and sin are like a fish out of water or a pig having a shower and applying deodorant. It's completely opposite to his character and nature. So a sinful man, you know, you and me, we fail to completely understand the holiness of God. And that's why we keep on sinning. We'll get to that in a minute. So many see God's wrath towards man as being way over the top, you know, especially unbelievers. Like they say that, well, God is overreacting to their sin. They might say or think something like, I don't think that what I've done really deserves eternity in the lake of fire. I'm not that bad a person. Have you heard people talk like that? But it's only because they fail to see that God is absolutely pure, perfect, and therefore completely holy. So what does holy mean? Well, the word holy means to command respect, awesome, sacred, set apart, singled out, and consecrated for something. So what is God consecrated for? What is he set apart for? Everything that is good. Yeah? Everything that is perfect. Everything that is pure. Everything that is honest. That's his holiness, yeah? Everything that is right and noble and beautiful. God is holy. So why do we need to understand it? Well, because if we don't first understand God's absolute perfection and holiness, we're not going to appreciate the difference between us and God. We won't appreciate just how wicked and rotten our sinful human nature is. And this is a big problem. We don't really understand just how completely deserving of God's wrath we are. So God's perfect nature and the sinful nature we are born with are literally like day and night, light and dark, yeah? So we're very, very different from God. A couple of scriptures that bring this out. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. It says, You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And then there's Psalm 99 
verses 1 through 5, it says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, or Israel. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And the psalm goes on. And now I've got an example from Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to see how Isaiah had a really sudden change in his view of himself. So I want you to picture this, right? You know, you're Isaiah, you're most likely a priest. He had this vision in the temple. Only a priest is allowed in the temple, so he's in the temple. Living a pretty good life, thinking he's a pretty good person. And if you asked, you know, Mr. Isaiah, so are you a good person? He probably would have said, yeah, I'm pretty good. But watch what happens. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, or angels, powerful angels. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, what did Isaiah say? Did he join in the song? Could he sing holy, holy, holy? No. He said, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. And that means to be destroyed, cut off, caused to cease, yeah? He realized at that point that the wrath of God would destroy him because he's a sinner. He's not welcome in heaven. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, how quickly did Isaiah's view of himself change when he saw God in all his holiness and glory? Again, he was like a priest, yeah? Living an outwardly godly life, an outwardly pure life, compared to the vast majority of people. Despite this, the first thing he realized when he was in the presence of God, his vision, was that he was a sinner or evil by nature. And that sin, and therefore the sinner, don't belong in the presence of God. So it's not necessarily what you do or don't do that's a big issue, it's who you are, it's who I am. If I'm sinful, if I have a sinful nature, then I am not welcome before God. And as I express this by saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what does the Bible say about what comes out of our heart? Yeah, it's the rottenness that comes out, yeah? Where we speak what's in our heart, and we know what we speak. Clark says, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot say, holy, 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 which the seraphs exclaim. They are holy. I am not so. They see God and live. I have seen him and must die, because I am unholy. So, God is holy, we are not. And David Guzik says, regarding Isaiah, 
When Isaiah saw the Lord, he knew what kind of man he was. The vision or actual experience of the throne of God did not immediately make Isaiah feel good. The more clearly he saw the Lord, the more clearly he saw how bad his state was. And just a pause here in this quote, this is what it's going to be like for us as we go through Romans, the second half of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3. We're going to see our moral depravity, the moral depravity of our sinful nature. So, continuing the quote, Isaiah's deep sense of depravity is consistent with the experience of other godly men in the presence of the Lord, Job, Daniel, Peter, and John. And you can see the references in your notes, and they each had similar experiences. What did Peter say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Yeah? He knew he didn't belong in the presence of Jesus. So the only way a person can really understand their sinful nature is to first understand that God is holy, that he is completely set apart to purity and perfection, in contrast to the sinful nature that we are born with, which is completely set apart to evil, the opposite of God, yeah? So only by seeing and comprehending God's holiness will our pride be dealt with, because otherwise we look at ourselves from an external point of view. And we don't see the fact that in God's eyes we are just disgusting. He's revulsed. We're repulsive to him. He's revulsed by us. So only by seeing and comprehending God's holiness would our pride be dealt with. There is no other way to see our sinful nature for what it really is and therefore have the desire to put the old man or sinful nature to death than to understand God's holiness and to see God's holiness. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. The sinful nature was always, or is always, hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So you can try and please God in your own strength, but you cannot. Outwardly, you might look good, but inwardly, your motive will always be wrong. Prideful, yeah? Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God, right? We can't. We're deceived by it. What does it say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But first, it's deceitful. How does it deceive us? It makes us think we're not such a bad old chap, eh? Yeah, I'm pretty good compared to the other guy. It's deceiving us, yeah? So God is so pure and holy that his wrath or righteous indignation against even just one lie, for example, is infinitely greater than the whole world's reaction to the 1,400 Jews who were tortured and tied up and burned and raped and finally butchered or executed on October 7, 2023. You know, just six weeks ago or so. So... God's holiness is so much greater than ours. You know, we see that something's that disgusting and we have this reaction to it, or anger. But God has a much greater reaction, even just to one lie. He's infinitely holy. So like the physical repulsion we feel when we are around the rotting carcass of a long dead animal, you know, if you've driven past a cow or a sheep that's died on the road and you go, oh, that's really bad, you know, makes you want to throw up. That's how God feels 
when he sees sin. And because we have a sinful nature, that's how God feels when he sees us. He wants to throw up, you know. His infinite holiness is infinitely more morally repulsed and disgusted by just one sin, you know. So why do you think people go to hell? Because God is repulsed by them. You know, God is holy and we are really different to God. We are sinners, okay. It doesn't really matter what you do, it's who you are. And we do what we do because of who we are. So here's a good way for us to begin to understand just how different our sinful nature is to God. So often, when we sin, it doesn't even bother us very much. We can easily justify ourselves. Ever done that before? I have. Now, Romans 7.18, it's really blunt. It just points out the total depravity of mankind. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. So a sinful nature actually very much enjoys the smell of rotting carcass, morally speaking, yeah? So we're tempted to say, well, I'm a pretty good bloke, but the real test of godliness is how much we hate evil. The real test of godliness is how much we hate evil. It's not necessarily the good things we do, but it's how much do I hate all those bad things, yeah? How much am I repulsed by those things that repulse God? Because as we go closer to God, we'll learn to love the things he loves and hate the things that he hates. So our sinful nature loves evil, and it's not for our God-given conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We would all sin with no restraint. Our sinful nature is completely corrupted. And that's what we're going to see in the next two and a half chapters. So that's the background to the next two and a half chapters. That's the setting that Paul is giving us. So let's read verses 18 through 20. And this is the testimony of God's creation. If there is a creation, there must be a creator. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the two words are ungodliness and unrighteousness. They refer to two different kinds of offence or sin. Ungodliness refers to man's sins and offences against God. So the first four of the Ten Commandments. And unrighteousness refers to the sins and offences of man against man, like things we do against each other. And that's the last six of the Ten Commandments. Now, who says, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this is a deliberate denial or suppression of the obvious truth of God's existence, his attributes, his holy character. And it's been going on since when? The Garden of Eden, right? Now what's happening in our schools? Universities and government, you know? Satan is working overtime to suppress the truth and promote the lie. Whether it be in science and literature, history, morality or religion. It's just Satan trying to suppress the truth and convince others to also suppress the truth. And follow the lie. We'll find out what that is in a minute. And 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest or revealed in them. For God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, that is, his divine nature or deity, so that they are without excuse. So this is referring to the unchanging witness of God's creation. So what does creation tell us about God? Well, the first thing is that God is infinitely powerful, and the word there is omnipotent. Only an infinitely powerful God could create a universe as big and as complicated as ours, speaking into existence out of nothing. And you remember that even science agrees with this fact that the universe had a beginning. Something had to get it going. So either God did it, or nothing did it. (laughs) Either God created everything, or nothing created everything, which is, of course, a scientific impossibility. Now, the second thing we learn from creation is that God is everywhere at once, and the word there is omnipresent. So, present everywhere. Now, how many stars do you think there are? Have a guess, without looking at the page. Well, our one galaxy has 100 billion stars. But what about the entire universe? Well, I'm going to read this quote from NASA. NASA's website. Astronomers estimate that the universe could contain up to one septillion stars. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. So one million, 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 million. And for reference, our Milky Way galaxy alone contains more than 100 billion stars. Now, how big is the universe? How big is the universe? Well, I looked at one website and they said it's 93 billion light years across, but nobody knows for sure. All they know is that the further they can see, there is more to see. So from our human perspective, the universe is infinite, if that makes sense. It's so big, God has made it so big that we can't see the outside of it. So... Only if God is everywhere at once could he create all those stars in such a vast area of space in one day, or very likely as long as it took to speak them into existence. And also remembering that everything is still expanding. The Bible says God stretched out the heavens. So, the third thing we know from creation is that God knows everything. And the word there is omniscient, all-knowing. God knows the name of every one of those septillion stars. Can you believe that? I struggle to remember the names of my own kids sometimes. <laughs> I've only got two, yeah. Now, also to create DNA and the other complex features of life, like our Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, God must be what? Infinitely intelligent. He must know everything. He must know everything there is to know to have built and create what we see today. So a couple of scriptures just to reaffirm this. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite, meaning he knows everything. Yeah. Psalm 19 verses 1 to 3. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day uttered speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Paul is probably repeating what David wrote in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's obvious there's a God. 
Now, here's a quote from an honest scientist. You know, sometimes you do get an honest scientist. His name is Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He might not still be there now, but he was when he wrote this. And he wrote, Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. Yeah. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are now the same. Consider the enormity of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain given moment. So the main point here is it had a beginning, right? It asks what caused to produce this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer this question. Remember, this guy's a NASA scientist and he's being honest here. Science cannot answer this question. And this next part of the quote is fantastic. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of his own reason, the story now ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock and he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. <laughs> we know God made it. They just figured it out for themselves, haven't they? The hard way. So, more logical thinking. Walking with a group of admirals one evening who were discussing whether or not God existed, Napoleon is said to have pointed to the heavens and said, Sirs, if you're going to get rid of God, you must get rid of these. <laughs> you know, pointing to the stars, yeah. Napoleon was right. The heavens declare the glory, the reality, the substance, and the weight of God. As John Corson said that. So now we move on to the next part. It's the slippery slope of self-deception and self-delusion, which leads to self-destruction. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And the foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, firstly in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. So, we can either live to glorify God or live to glorify ourselves. Are we living for Him or us? You know? Are we seeking praise from God or from man? So there's only two options. We look to God or look to ourselves. And so we see here that unbelief is a choice. It's a choice. And unbelief does two things. It blinds us to reality and it makes us ungrateful. So we refuse to acknowledge the good things that God has given us. And we refuse to acknowledge the reality of his existence and his goodness and his power and his omnipresence and his infinite knowledge. In verse 21 and 22, but became futile in their thoughts. Their thoughts or reasoning came to nothing. So that's what that means. Futile in their thoughts. Their thoughts or reasoning come to nothing. And their foolish hearts, uh, senseless or stupid hearts, were darkened. And that means blinded or unable to understand. So verse 22 sums it up. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So this is the obvious description of the atheist. The universe proclaims, God exists. And the atheist responds, no he doesn't. And they choose instead to believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. Alright, 
So why go down this road of insensibility? Why do people you know, go against obvious logic and reason? Well, because if they admit that God exists, then they are also admitting that they are accountable to him and therefore must or should submit to him as their creator. So we see that unbelief is really the same thing as a refusal to submit to God. It's pride. The atheist vainly believes that they know better than God because they want to live life their own way, doing what they want to do, and they want to be independent of God. Now, we come to a different kind of atheist, and this is a practical atheist. This is a person who says, yeah, I believe in God, but live like he doesn't exist. Does that make sense? The practical atheist. So the person who says, yeah, I believe in God, but they live like he doesn't exist. They live according to what they want to do, not what God wants them to do. So, just like the atheists, they refuse to submit to God and instead follow Satan's motto, do as you will or my will be done. That's pure Satanism, right there. Do as you will, you know. My will be done. Not God's will, but my will. What did Satan say? I will rule, yeah, I'll have my own way. So this is the opposite of Jesus' example of submission to the Father when he said, Not my will, but yours be done. In Luke 22, verse 42, remember Jesus says, Not my will, but yours be done. And we say, Not your will, but mine be done. Yeah. When we rebel against God and do our own thing. That's what we're saying. And Spurgeon says, Will you kindly notice that, according to my text, knowledge is of no use if it does not lead to holy practice? They knew God. It was no good to them to know God, for they glorified him not as God. So my theological friend over there, who knows so much that he can split hairs over doctrines, it does not matter what you think or what you know, unless it leads you to glorify God and to be thankful. John 5.30, this is Jesus again. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I, what? Do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And verse 23 says, And change the glory of the corruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, suppression leads to substitution. If we suppress the truth, we're going to substitute into that vacuum, if you want to call it that, a lie. If you take away the truth, you're going to introduce a lie. If a person chooses to reject the true God by suppressing the truth about him, they then must invent a false God, a substitute God, a God they are comfortable with, a God in their own image that agrees with them. They use that God to justify their own life, their own behavior. Now for the atheist, who is the God for the atheist? <laughs> well, they believe in no other God, so they are their own God. They worship themselves. But there are many others who invent another god, and thus we have all the other religions, like Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, New Age, occult, animism, and you also have the various Christian cults, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. There's many. So, the main thing here is that we become like the god we worship. And this is a double-edged sword. If I worship Jesus, I will be transformed into his glorious and perfect image. But if I worship any other god, I'll become like that other image. 
And basically, it's all the same. It's the sinful nature, yeah? I'm going to become more and more depraved. So we're going to see now the sad consequences of choosing not to believe and submit to the one true God. And we come to the last part. Part four, the tragic result of worshipping a substitute God. Our sinful nature exposed and judged. So let's read verses 24 through 32. And I want you to notice I've highlighted three phrases there. God also gave them up in verse 24. God gave them up in verse 26. And in verse 28, God gave them over. Same thing, same meaning. There's a three-stage judgment here, and we're going to see what that is. It gets worse as it goes on. So, see if you can figure it out. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now we come to the next one. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. So see how it follows on? For this reason, because they uh, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even the women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Now we come to the third part. God gave them over to a debased mind. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, remember they got to substitute God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, even-mindedness, they are whisperers, gossipers, backbiters or slanderers, Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So again, notice the three stages of judgment that God allows or imposes on us, depending on how you look at it. In verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. In verse 28, God gave them over. So the judgment of God is often just letting us get what we want and allowing us to self-destruct as we follow the desires of a sinful nature. We see it all around us, you know. Bad relationships and bad choices, you know. If we really want something like it happened with Israel, God will let them have it. And he'll warn them first, it's going to kill you. It's going to be bad for you. But they say, no, we want it, we want it. And he'll let them have it and they suffer. Their own choices become their own judgment. So, the judgment of God is simply allowing us to do what we want and allows us to self-destruct as we follow the desires of our sinful nature. So, sin kills, destroys, blinds, binds, makes foolish and causes us to become morally depraved. And it results in immense suffering and pain. How could we avoid all this? Simply by submitting to God, and obeying Him in the first place, yeah? So we're going to see the three levels or phases of God's righteous judgment of our sin while we're still living here on this earth. Example from Israel, how God says, you know what, just let Him be, that's His punishment. I'm not going to have to do anything more. 
what he's doing is punishment enough for himself. God punished Israel, or Ephraim, the northern tribes, in the same way. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him be alone, or let him alone, Isaiah 4.17. And looking back, we can see that the nation of Israel, especially the northern kingdom, literally self-destructed. They destroyed themselves. Who took them captive, remember? What nation took them captive? Babylonians, yeah. So, God in his righteous wrath says, if you want to follow your own way, then go down that path, but that path will destroy you. You are creating your own punishment and suffering. Now David Guzik says, good way of summarizing this, we make a mistake when we think that it is God's mercy or kindness that allows men to continue in sin. It is actually his wrath that allows us to go on destroying ourselves with sin. Interesting, eh? We make a mistake when we think that it is God's mercy or kindness that allows men to continue in sin. It is actually his wrath that allows us to go on destroying ourselves with sin. Now, phase one of God's judgment, and I've called this allowing sexual immorality or fornication. Fornication is just any sexual sin. Adultery is specifically when you're married. Um, Fornication is any sexual sin. So, verse 24, to uncleanness. Now, uncleanness, and the Greek meaning there is filth, dirt, rubbish, foulness, immorality. In the lust, the lust is desires or cravings of their hearts to dishonor or shame their bodies among themselves. So, the first level of punishment when people choose to suppress the truth about God is that they start living an immoral life. You ask, you know, many people and say, well, are you married? And they say, well, no. And you go, okay. And they think it's great, but they don't realize they're actually under God's judgment. It's a punishment because they're missing out on the good life they could have had, yeah? So the simple way of saying this is they are rejecting marriage and God's standards of moral purity and goodness. And it's getting worse. So here's some facts for you. More and more primary school age kids have given themselves away. That's a nice way of saying it. And or are addicted to pornography. And it's culturally acceptable for couples to choose not to get legally married. There's a massive divorce rate. It's almost 50%. And this is pretty startling for me. Since that referendum where they approved gay marriage, 5% or 4.8% in 2019 of marriages in Australia were same-sex marriages. So a quote from the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, in 2019, 113,815 marriages were registered and 49,116 divorces were granted in Australia. It's almost half. There were 5,507 same-sex marriages in 2019 accounting for 4.8% of all marriages. What does it mean? Well, fornication and sexual immorality has become accepted in the world with people refusing to do things God's way, and that's marriage, yeah? God's way is to marry, to wait until marriage. Instead, they bring judgment on themselves by living together. Now, Hebrews 13.4 from the Amplified says, Let marriage be held in honor, meaning to be esteemed worthy, precious, of great price, and especially dear in all things. So let marriage be held in honor in all things, 
and thus let the marriage bed be undefiled. And that means kept undishonored. That's a hard word, isn't it? Undishonored. For God will judge and punish the unchaste, that is, all guilty of sexual vice and adulterers. So when people are living together, what are they doing? They are defiling the institution of marriage. They are dishonoring the institution of marriage. They're spitting in God's face. They think they are happy playing house and all that, but they are actually experiencing God's wrath as they continually give their bodies away to one or more people that they are not married to in order to satisfy their sexual cravings. And two obvious consequences of this sin are dysfunctional families and many fatherless children. An example of this in John chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Jesus talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. She replied, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, You're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, moving on to verse 25. Who exchanged or substituted the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, again, it's the lie, the definite article in the Greek. It's referring to a specific lie. What's the lie? Well, the lie is that we substitute ourselves for God. It's called idolatry, when we worship something else apart from God. Yeah. When we submit to and worship our own desires and cravings instead of doing what God wants. And this is the original lie in the garden, Satan's lie to Eve, you will be like God. You can do what you want. You can be your own boss. No more having to do what someone else tells you to do. You can be like God. Now, we move on to phase two of God's judgment, allowing vile passions. And this refers to homosexuality and lesbianism. So, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to, that's the third time we see this phrase, and again, for this reason, right? Referring to the previous verses. For this reason, God gave them up to vile, that means disgraceful and dishonorable passions or lust, okay? For even the women exchange a natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves a penalty of the error which was due. We come to the second stage now of moral depravity. If phase one of God's judgment is living together, the rejection and dishonoring of marriage, phase two is a redefinition of marriage and sexual relationships to include male-male and female-female sexual relationships. So there's a slide, there's a progression of sin in society. First, marriage is dishonored. And then there's a redefinition of marriage. And that's where our country is in now. We have the referendum. We redefine marriage. We have homosexual marriage doing very well in our country of Australia. Now, what does God think about homosexuality and lesbianism? Well, it says here it's vile, dishonorable, disgusting, and shameful. Now, was the world in Paul's day different to what it is now? Or do you think it was much the same? 
It's the same. Yeah. So if actually it's a little bit worse. And David Guzik has got a good summary of what it was like there in the Roman Empire. And so see how there's many similarities between what it was then and what it is now. This is, yeah, it's quite shocking. Paul wrote to a culture where homosexuality was accepted as part of life for both men and women. For some 200 years, the men who ruled the Roman Empire openly practiced homosexuality, often with young boys. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed approved homosexual prostitution and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples or same-sex couples was recognised, and even some of the emperors married other men. At the very time Paul wrote, Nero was emperor. He took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated, then married him with a full ceremony, brought him into the palace with a great procession, and made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man, and Nero was the wife. And David Guzik continues, In modern culture, homosexual practice reflects the abandonment of giving them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Statistics say, or tell us, that on average, 43% of homosexuals say they have had 500 or more sexual partners in their lifetime, and only 1% of homosexuals say they have had four or less sexual partners in their lifetime. According to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, only 28% of homosexuals said they knew their partners for at least one week before participating in a homosexual act. Homosexuals often seem to specialise in anonymous sex with no emotional commitment. At one time, London AIDS clinics defined a woman as promiscuous if she had more than six partners in her lifetime. They gave up trying to apply a workable definition to male homosexuals when it became clear that they saw almost no homosexual men who had less than six sexual partners a year. So that's the world we're living in today. Very similar to what it was in Paul's day. So we can see we're sliding down this track, this progression of sin, getting worse and worse and worse. If you're living in Australia, you know, 80 years ago, low divorce rate, marriage was pretty much honoured, and then people started living together more and more and more, marriage became more and more dishonoured, and then it came to the point where marriage was redefined, and homosexual marriage was introduced. And we go on to verse 27, it says, receiving in themselves a penalty of their error, which was due. So this penalty is obviously partly something that is literally in themselves, and this could include disease. So the number of homosexuals who have died from AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases is very high. And of course, it affects other people as well who are not sexually pure. So in some countries, the vast majority of the older and sexually active generation died of STDs, mainly AIDS, and they left behind a younger orphaned generation, like most of the kids of that generation in some countries in Africa were orphans. Their parents had died of STDs. So, like the Israelites found out, not restraining ourselves and indulging ourselves to satisfy our cravings will often lead to physical death. And there's a section in the scripture regarding Israel where the people cried out for meat. It's a real thing back then, but it's a picture for us now. If we crave something, God will give it to us, but it can kill us. And in the scripture, God called that place graves of craving because many people died there. 
So Numbers 11, 33 to 34. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, and that literally means graves of craving, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. So when are we going to learn that giving in to the desires or cravings or lusts of our sinful nature will kill or destroy us? Sin by nature is self-destructive, yeah? So the consequence may not always be physical. Often the result is a spiritual emptiness. So think about the mental health epidemic in the world today. Depression, self-harm, suicide, addictions to mind-numbing substances like drugs and alcohol. People don't do it for fun. They do it because they're medicating themselves, right? Most of the time. Dull the pain. They're becoming more and more common, yeah? So people think, that people are taught that they will be free or they can be free and they can be happy because they are getting what they want. They can do what they want. But the reality is they are suffering greatly for their poor choices, yeah? They're suppressing the truth, believing the lie and are coming under the judgment of God. Their own sin is judging them, yeah? They are being judged by God. They are receiving in themselves a penalty of their error. So it doesn't have to be an AIDS disease. It could be just depression or things like that. Not to say that all depression is because of sin. Some is just a natural thing because we live in a sin-cursed world. Make sure people understand that not all depression is because of sin. Yeah. Now, phase three of God's judgment, allowing a debased or worthless mind. So... We're going to move from what we do and how we act to how we think. So this is phase three, all right? We can be, you know, doing the wrong thing, but still be kind of nice people. But phase three is where we start to really think bad and treat people really bad. And this is what's happening in our world today, especially in the last few years, the last 10, 20 years, you know. The amount of violence, the amount of lies, the amount of slander. You look in the political realm, you know. It's not a matter of, oh, you know, I'm going to promote myself. No, I'm going to tear the other person down. So we're going to read just these verses. Just not going to go through all these different words, but just as we go through, just think about what they mean and does it relate to our culture today, right? These are the things which are not fitting, which are done by people with a debased mind. That means a non-approved mind, a disapproved mind. Again, consider if they accurately describe our modern society. So verses 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They whisperers, or gossipers, backbiters, or slanderers, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Now, David Guzik has a quote. As further judgment, God gives man over to a debased mind. So this is like the third phase of his judgment. This is the lowest point. So that things that are disgraceful and sickening are readily accepted and approved. The word debased originally meant that which has not stood the test. It was used of coins that were below standard and therefore rejected, meaning they were counted as worthless. Do you think that describes our societies today? What do you think of the people who are protesting in support of Hamas? So that things, as David Guzzi said, God gives man over to a debased mind so that things that are disgraceful and sickening are readily accepted and approved. What did Hamas do? Burned, raped, killed, mutilated, tortured, 1,400 people and then, you know, executed them in front of their families a lot of the time. And what are these people doing? Yeah, go Hamas, go Hamas, you know. What do they want to do to the Jews? Kill the Jews. We don't want them. From the river to the sea, let Palestine be free, you know. It's the most sickening thing I've ever heard. It's genocide. Do you realize that? And yet most of the world is actually going, yeah, let's get behind Hamas, you know. Let's get rid of the Jews. This debased mind state of being where the things which are sickening and disgraceful are rarely accepted and approved is here. This is our society today. Now verse 32, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, this is a hard one for us, right? Because we say, well, I don't do those things. You know, I'm a faithful husband, I'm a faithful wife. Great, okay. But it's not just what I do, but also what I approve of or get pleasure from that is deserving of God's wrath. For example, if I choose to watch a movie where there's any kind of sexual immorality, including you know, people having sex or living together and not being married, then I am agreeing that fornication or any sexual immorality is good and I'm just as guilty as the one who is actually committing the sin. My mind and my thinking is debased. It doesn't meet God's standard. It is worthless and rejected. So it's not just the things I do, it's the things I approve of. John Corson has a good quote. He says, Oh, I would never murder anyone. I would never invent an evil thing, we say. But do we enjoy watching the inventions of evil things and murder in movies? I would never commit adultery, we say, but I love to watch the soaps. We're guilty, you see, gang. If you are one who enjoys watching murder after murder after decapitation after adulterous affair because you've allowed your carnal appetite to be developed, you are guilty and death will come to you. I don't mean necessarily you're going to die physically, but watch what will happen to your marriage. Watch how it will cease to be vital and warm. Watch how your kids will grow up and you'll wonder why there's darkness on their faces and posters of despair in their rooms. Be ye holy, the Lord says to us, Leviticus 20 verse 7, for our choice to live either in holiness or carnality will greatly affect not only us, but those around us. Again, that's from John Corson. So as believers, we have a big fight in our hands, right? We need to actively fight against the tremendous pressure that this world, the flesh, and the devil 
the world, the environment around us, the flesh, our sinful nature, and you know the demonic influence. That is all there trying to cause us, trying to convince us to suppress the truth and compromise and seek to please or gratify our sinful nature. So what's the answer to this? Well, Philippians 4, 8 and 9 to finish off. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true. That's the first thing he says. Why is that important? Because where do we start today? They suppressed the truth. They put aside the truth, yeah? They took their eyes off the truth. It says, fix your eyes on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now look at this, verse 9. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. So even as a believer, if I'm sinning, I'm actually making myself an enemy of God. I've, practically speaking, switched sides. I've become an enemy of God. And, you know, God says, if you join them, you'll be punished with them. So I come out from among them. We're not going to lose our salvation, but we will suffer the same kind of judgment as the world does if we act like the world, yeah? In a practical sense, in the here and now. Our eternal destiny is safe, but now it's all up to us. We have the choice. We can depend on God and his strength to live his way, or we can reject that, suppress the truth, and do what we want to do. Father, I thank you for this very challenging scripture. Lord, I pray that we will meditate on this and consider this. The sermon is said, but it's not done. Lord, there's a lot here that we need to, because of the battle between our sinful nature and our spirit as believers, uh, where the temptation is to suppress the truth and worship ourselves instead of worshipping you, to seek to do what pleases us instead of what pleases you. Help us, show us, Lord, if there's any areas of our life where we're doing that. And, Lord, to realize that it's not just what we do, it's who we are that is an abomination to you. We are born as a sinner, and a sinner has no place in your sight. And your wrath is against us. But, Lord, we thank you for the gift of the gospel, the gift of Jesus Christ, this beautiful gift that we receive. We can receive the righteousness of God. And our sin is taken away. And we receive right standing with you. We are looked upon, we are counted as being as righteous as God, as having lived a perfect life like Jesus did. That life is credited to us, to every individual believer. So we thank you for our eternal security, for our eternal destiny with you. But Lord, we pray that we can live a life that glorifies you now, today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.